You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation, last book in your Bible, chapter number one. Thank you for being in church tonight and being faithful and fighting through the weather and the wind and being here. And I'm praying God will speak to our hearts. I was praying toward the end of the year, the second half of December, really, as we finished up the series that we had been in on spiritual warfare for so long, from September all the way till almost the end of the year, on, on where to go next. And here's what I've found out. When I struggle and I really wrestle with it, usually I never get anything. And whenever I just kind of give up and just wait on God to give it, then it seems like God will give it. And so this is what I believe God's laid in my heart. We're going to cover this topic for the next many weeks. And we'll be in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 4 for this series mainly. And the theme or the topic is going to be Christ and his church in the last days. I don't think you can overemphasize the importance of the church in the day and hour in which we're living in. I don't think you can go wrong in overemphasizing that which Jesus loves and that he died for and shed his blood for. And we're blessed tonight to have a church. And everyone who is born again is in Christ. I understand that. But right now, listen, until the rapture, the body of Christ won't be visible. But right now we have these local assemblies. And we have a local church here tonight. And God's blessed us to be part of a called-out assembly of born-again baptized believers. But we're living in the last days, perilous times. But in the book of Revelation, I believe we can get some insight in regards to Christ and his church in the last days. We're going to begin reading tonight in verse number 9. I'd like to read all of the chapter, but I won't because of sake, for sake of time. It's just a good, the first eight verses are very good verses, testify about the Lord. But I want to begin in verse number 9, and we'll read down through the first part of verse 13, and I'll give you the introduction to this series tonight. And I want you to see something that maybe you've seen before, maybe you haven't, but I hope it'll be a help to us. Revelation chapter number 9, verse number 1. The Bible says, I, John, also, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I underline that phrase in my Bible. During the era of the catacombs, that phrase was etched in the walls of the catacombs by Christians. That is a phrase, I think it was found 60-some times in the catacombs. That's a phrase for Christians in midst of persecution. And John said, I know why I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because I've stood for the word of God and proclaimed the gospel. Verse number 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And there you notice he didn't say send it to the church in Asia, but he's writing to seven distinct local assemblies in the area of what is today Asia Minor. Under, here's the churches. Under Ephesus, and under Smyrna, and under Pergamos, and under Thyatira, and under Sardis, and under Philadelphia, and under Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And here's the phrase, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. 
And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. John on the Isle of Patmos, given this revelation, by the way, it's not the revelation of St. John the Divine, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It even tells us that in the, in the book. Anyway, Bible commentaries and probably your Bible say something else. John on the island is given a revelation. He's told to write this book, the book of Revelation, by the way, seven times. There's a copy of the book of Revelation for every one of these local churches. Could you imagine that? He pinned it down seven times. He hears behind him when he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and that's a good way to be whenever you're in the house of God, especially on a Sunday. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He hears a voice, and he turns around. He wants to see. Now, listen, we don't have to be that smart to understand if there's a voice that probably came from somebody. So he wants to see somebody. But the Bible tells us in verse 12, when he turned to see the voice, he did not initially see a voice, but he saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, in verse number 20 of the chapter, the Bible tells us that the seven candlesticks are those seven local churches. John was alert, alert, how do you want to, my, my accent, alert by the voice. He was captivated by the voice. He was awakened by the voice. He wanted to see the source of the voice. But before he discovered the source of the voice, he saw the candlesticks or the churches that the one who spoke dwelled within. It was so important that those candlesticks had a light that would shine to illuminate the one who was in the midst of them. Had they been dull, had they been uh, tarnished, had they been candlesticks that weren't very attractive to John, maybe he would have turned his attention away. But in these days, these last days, how imperative it was that the candlestick cast a good light on the one who was in the midst so John could see the source of the voice. For a little while tonight, I want to preach on this thought. Christ and his church in the last days. Here is our priority. Shine for Jesus. Shine for Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help tonight. I pray that you'd teach us from your word and challenge us as well in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're even a casual Bible student, then you know from studying the Scripture that we're living in the last days. In fact, Christians have been living in the last days since the ascension of Jesus Christ or the time of the book of Acts. Tonight, we are not a church full of date setters or sign seekers, but we are Bible students. And it is plain from studying the Bible, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Every moment that passes by on the clock and every page we turn on our calendar, we are that much closer to the coming of Christ for those who are born again. There are no words tonight that could fully express the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. The Bible does give us several analogies to help us understand it. For example, the church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's bride. The church is Christ's building. The church is Christ's purchased possession, bought with his own blood. The church is not a lodge, nor is it a legion, but it's a fellowship of saints that have eternity beating within their breast. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament, but it is the main theme of the New Testament. Unlike Israel, the church is not a physical seed based on ethnicity, but it is a spiritual seed based on on the new birth or redemption. Our promises are not necessarily physical, though there are some physical promises, but our inheritance is that which is spiritual. 
In Christ, every person who is saved has been baptized by one spiritual baptism into one spiritual body that we can call the church. Jew and Gentile, bond and free, barbarian and Scythian, male and female, all walks of life, all races, all age levels, all kinds of baggage, but all yoked together by the bond of grace and redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ. Tonight, a church is a called-out assembly of born-again people. The church is distinctly not of this world, though it is in this world. John 15 and verse 19 says, You are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. When you walk into even the most humble building that houses Christian people, in that church you are looking at a royal priesthood and a bunch of sinners who are now joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That almost make you shout on a rainy Wednesday night. There's no humanistic hierarchy in Christ's church. All of us are members of this body, and Jesus Christ alone is the head. No member is part of this body because of their bank account or their pedigree or a charitable donation, but all of us who are in this body have been grafted in by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. The ground is level, and every member of this church, the church, is just as important as the next. The church is not a building. North Valley Baptist Church is not this auditorium nor the educational wing. It is not the dormitories nor the steeple. The church is not a building. The church is a body. The church is not a club. The church is an organization. And there may be seasons where the church is pruned, but thank God the church will never be cut down. And at times she might be scattered and battered, but the Bible promises the church will march on. There is no way we can place too high of an emphasis on the church. You can esteem a business too highly. You can exalt a sports team too much. You can brag about your home and take it a little bit too far, but you'll never go overboard talking or lifting up the church that Jesus loves. Calvary was for the church. The inspiration and preservation of the scripture is for the church. The promise of resurrection is for the church. The promise of rapture is for the church. The mansions waiting for us in heaven are for the church. The Lamb's book of life is the record book of the church. The judgment seat of Christ and the rewards promised are for the church. The marriage supper of the Lamb is for the church. Reigning in the millennial kingdom is reserved for the church. I think about the song, soon the Lamb will take his bride to be forever by his side. And thank God in heaven will be with him as symbol. But here's the next phrase. Oh, it will be a glorious sight all the saints in spotless white and with Jesus they will feast eternally Jesus loves his church we have an I love my church Sunday and that's a good thing but I'm glad Jesus loves his church every moment of every day the church is his dove and he is our beloved the foundation of the church is the person of Christ the message of the church is the gospel of Christ. The objective of the church is to glorify Christ. The accountability of the church is the holiness of Christ. And the ultimate goal of the church is to hear well done from the lips of Christ. So we're going to talk about for a few weeks Christ and his church. Now at the beginning of the message I said we're living in the last days. And with the last days according to 2 Timothy come perilous times. And these are days that are very unfriendly days to the church. You can see it if you look, you'll see a general decline across America in church attendance. You can watch as on Sunday, 
Sunday's given to almost any activity other than spiritual activity. I believe our elected officials work against the church and are passing laws that tighten the noose around the neck of the church. You say, how is that? Well, there's a redefining of scriptural and even proven scientific truths in our day. And now they're calling those who would be within the church fanatical and the church a place of hate. In a world that is so, so unholy, you better believe it, that a holy place will not be favorable. In a day that is so atheistic, a day that declares there's a real God up in heaven who's alive and well, they're not going to be very popular. In a generation that is so depraved, a place that tries to hold the line for righteousness won't be tolerated very much longer. And the day is coming in America where the church will be severely censored, sorely slandered, and seriously persecuted. Now, if you're a Bible-believing person, that isn't going to excite you because none of us want to go through that. But it also ought not discourage you too much because if you study the Bible, and take a look at church history panoramically, you'll understand that the church was made for days like this. In fact, the church was birthed in persecution. The church has thrived in persecution, and the church will prevail in spite of a persecution. You can see it if you study history. The blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Every time the devil's tried to stomp out the work of God, he scatters sparks everywhere. The fire spreads and then preachers are called and revival happens and souls are saved and more churches are started. I read a statement and here's what the statement said. If the devil roars, the church, if the, rather, if the devil never roars, the church will never sing. And throughout history, when the devil has roared his loudest, the church has sung its most beautiful song. And tonight as we live in these last days, let me lift up the church just for a little bit. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It was penned by John on the Isle of Patmos. He's in exile. He is a prisoner. In fact, I told you earlier, John penned this book not once but seven times, and a copy of Revelation was delivered to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. When you look at the book of Revelation and then go back and compare it to the book of Genesis, there's an amazing contrast in the first book of your Bible and the last book of your Bible. Let me give you this just in passing. In Genesis, you find the creation of, a new, of, of, a, of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, you find the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, the first Adam reigned in a garden. In Revelation, the second Adam reigns in glory. In Genesis, the sun is made to rule the day. But in Revelation, there's no need of the sun because the lamb is the light of the city. In Genesis, night is created. But in Revelation, night is no more. In Genesis, they give a bride to Adam. But in Revelation, there's a bride presented to Jesus. In Genesis, Satan causes the fall of man. But in Revelation, Jesus causes the doom of Satan. In Genesis, man is driven from God and the gates are closed. In Revelation, man dwells with God and the gates are never shut. In Genesis, death begins to reign. But in Revelation, death comes to an end. In Genesis, you see paradise lost. But in Revelation, you see paradise found. In Revelation, there is temporal, or rather, in Genesis, there is temporal rest. But in Revelation, there is eternal rest. In Genesis, Abraham begins to look for a city. In Revelation, the saints get to live in that city. In Genesis, the book closes with a coffin in Egypt. But in Revelation, it ends with rejoicing around the throne in eternity. And let me challenge you tonight, don't be scared to study the book of Revelation because the Bible promises you'll be blessed if you read the book of the, the words of this prophecy. And you better believe the devil doesn't want you to study it because this book reminds us he's a loser every single day of the week and we are on the winning side because our Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Now, chapter 1 through 3 deals with Christ and these seven churches. As you study the opening three chapters, the theme begins to unravel. After the beginning verses of chapter 4, the church is no longer on the earth. The church is around the throne in heaven. And by the way, that's where they will remain until the second advent of Christ when he returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. In John's day, the postal route that ran through Asia Minor ran in a clockwise pattern. If you would study it out and see these seven local churches, these churches are along that postal route. As John begins to address these via inspiration, he addresses them in the order as they would appear on the face of a clock. Now, you know the number seven in your Bible is the number of completion or perfection. So these these seven local churches don't just picture seven literal churches, but they also give us an overview of the entirety of church history. It's interesting how it starts in that Ephesian era and ends in the Laodicean era. And even on a physical map, those cities are laid out in clockwise order. What a reminder to you and I that God works right on time every time. And when it seems like things aren't going right, trust me, God is still in control. Now, chapter 1, John is there on the Isle of Patmos. He is serving hard time because he stood for the Lord. He's a preacher, he's a pastor, and now he's a prisoner. He is the last apostle alive. He's labored a lot, he's loved a lot, and he's lived a lot, and now he's alone on this island. John is an old man. He's 90 years old. He's been scourged. He's been starved. He's malnourished. He's been boiled and filleted alive. He's the last living apostle, and because of that, he has become the target of the hatred of this world as that symbol of Christianity in his day. He's been banished as a prisoner, meaning all of his property has been taken and his civil rights have been stripped away. And now this old man is forced into hard labor in this penal colony, the Isle of Patmos. Now tonight, John is known for his passion. We say he's the disciple who loves, but don't overlook, he's also a man of great perseverance, grit, and conviction because it would have been easy at his old age to bow out, bend, and say, you know what? I fought my fight. I'm going to ride out into the sunset and fade off the scene. But I like that John is still at it, standing for God, even when it wasn't favorable, when he wasn't popular, and when he's in chains on the Isle of Patmos. In verse number one, John identifies himself. Look at verse one. He said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. I like that. There's no pride. He could have said his apostle, his preacher, but he says, I'm just his servant. In verse number two, he identifies the theme of the letter. Look at verse two. Who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This book, I said it a minute ago, is all about the Lord. It's not about the penman. It's about Jesus Christ. In verse number 4, John identifies his target audience. In verse 4, he says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Then in verse number 9, look down to verse number 9, he identifies his setting. In verse 9, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse number 10, he identifies his disposition and the day in which he is writing. Look what it says in verse number 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, verse 10, 
the second half to verse 11. He says he hears a voice. Look what it says in verse number 10. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, and I like this, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Then he lists all of those churches. Now, for the message tonight, all of that is foundation to get to what I already, I gave you the message in one minute. That's encouraging in it before I started. And now 30 minutes later, here we go. Now, here's what happened. John is on this island. He's been sentenced there as a criminal. While he's on that island, in the spirit, hears a voice from behind. John is enamored with what he hears. And like you and I would, he turns around to hear this voice. He's been awakened by this voice. He's been aroused by this voice. There's authority in this voice. And he wants to see who it is that's speaking to his heart on that island. Now, you study the book of Revelation. That word voice is 41 times in the scripture. The word trumpet is often used in Revelation as well. And you combine those things together. It tells you this is a voice that has a lot of power behind it. In fact, the voice is like many waters. It sounds like waves crashing on the face of a cliff. A powerful voice speaks to John. And John thinks, I got to see that voice. I've never heard a voice like that voice. I've never felt like I felt when I heard that voice. I want to see who's speaking to me. And look what it said at the end of verse 12. And being turned, I saw not a voice. Didn't see a voice. What did he see? The Bible said he turned and he saw initially seven golden candlesticks. And then as he watched, as he inspected, as he estimated, as he gazed at those golden candlesticks, all of a sudden into view popped the one in the middle that spoke to his heart. When John looked for a voice, he was met by these seven candlesticks. These candlesticks, listen to me now, stood independently one from another. But they were unified by the one who moved in their midst. This is not a Jewish menorah, one candle with a bunch of branches. But rather, this is something totally unique and totally new. These are autonomous, independent candlesticks revolving around the Lord Jesus Christ. They were independent, they were illuminated, and they were invaluable. They were gold. Now, these candlesticks are gold. But on top of that candlestick, the actual candle itself would be a clay pot filled with olive oil. So picture it with me. Seven golden candlesticks made to lift up this clay so that it could burn the oil that was within it and shine a light to brighten up a room. So when John looked for a voice, he was met by these candlesticks. Now, I told you in verse 20, the candlesticks are seven churches there in Asia Minor. So here's the picture from the text. Christ is in his churches. John heard Jesus speak. But before he saw the Lord, he set his eyes upon the churches. It's amazing that John saw the Lord via the church, and it happened on a Sunday. I can't help but wonder what might have been had those candles been ugly. What if their light had been dim? What if they hadn't been burning at all? Would John have been able to see the Lord? The cause and purpose of the candlestick was to shine enough light to draw... 
I just got excited. The, the, the cause of the candlestick was to shine enough light to draw John's attention to Jesus and make Jesus look good. I know the candlestick was gold, but it's not about the gold on the candlestick. It's about the God that's walking in the midst of the candlestick. And John sees the burn on those candles and it allured him. It accentuated and advertised Christ. Those candles were shining for Jesus. You see, in Matthew 5 and verse number 15, it tells us that we are candles that are to be burning for God in this generation. Not under a bushel, not hidden under a bed, but we're to let our light so shine before men. And here's what God did in the goodness of God. God didn't want us to be alone. God didn't want us to fly solo. We are not some lone wolf for Jesus, some maverick for God. But God in his goodness ordained that there would be a called out assembly of like-minded, born again, baptized believers. Why? My light alone is kind of weak. My light alone doesn't brighten up too much but when we get our lights joined together and then we get them set on the candlestick which is North Valley Baptist Church we have the opportunity to shine a light in a dark day not to make us look good but to make Jesus look good it's not about our gold it's not about our oil it's about the God in the midst of the candlestick I can see John looking to see a who but he saw a where first let me apply this by the way, I'm glad that John could see Jesus in his church on Sunday. The cause that we have as a church is to brighten up the blackness in our day and to illuminate the darkness. I don't care if people ever say, my, what a church. Our church ought to want them to say, my, what a Christ. Say amen right there. It was grace that enabled us to shine. It was grace that gave us a candlestick. And it's only grace that makes us a blessing to other people. In these last days, it is essential that the church of God shine on for Jesus. No bushel, no bed, but up on the candlestick bright for the world to see. I remember the illustration I read about a little boy who was given a, I don't have any change, but given a penny. And his daddy said, when you go to church, I want you to give that penny to God in the offering. By the way, you've got to get a stinky paycheck to tie the penny. That's always discouraging. But he said, give it to God. They went to church, slept through the sermon. It's a rainy Wednesday night. And then on the way home, the father heard the unmistakable sound of coins flipping from fingernail in the back seat. And he turned around and said, son, what is it? He goes, that's that penny. He said, I told you to give it to God at church. He said, I planned to, but I never saw God when we went to church. Now, I wonder how many churches in America are guilty of just that. That if somebody broken or somebody lost or somebody hungry or somebody hurting or somebody in need was to wander in that place of supposed worship on any given service time, I wonder if they'd go through an entire hour in that place having never really seen God while they were there. I remember the church where I got saved. I tell you, it wasn't very fancy. It could have fit up on this platform, a little white country church. I remember going to the back door of that church and these men were in suits. I never understood that at that time in my life. Why would you wear a suit and tie and go to church? You know, what in the world's up with that? And then the women all had on dresses. I, I, I thought it was a cult. I, honestly, I had no idea. Never seen anything like it. I went there and thought, what in the world is... But they were happy. They were the happiest cult members I'd ever met. 
I mean, honestly, they were happy about it. These old country men out there in their shirt and ties and cowboy boots and skull in their back pocket. But anyway, they're, they're excited about it, smoking cigarettes and things. But I mean, they were happy to be there. And the women there in their denim jumpers and things and buns on the back of their head and flannel shirt. I mean, in five o'clock shadows, it was awesome. But anyway, I remember going to that church. They were all excited about it and they were happy about it. And I'll tell you what I saw there. They were joyous about being there at church. And in their joy, I saw Jesus. I didn't get saved because the preacher preached the devil out of me, though he did. You've heard my testimony. Honestly, I think the reason why I bought in was because the people that I went to church with that day were bought in. And the light was shining bright on that little candlestick that day in that holler in West Virginia. The request of John 12, 21 is this, sirs, we would see Jesus. And if our world is going to see Christ in his candlestick, we've got to let the light shine. And if the world can't find Christ in his church, where are they going to find him? Charles Spurgeon said, no Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching about. Darkness covers the world and corrupts people and captures souls, but the church has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light to shine in this very day. Let me give you an application I've got to get through. I want you to think about the day and hour in which John saw his vision. What kind of a day was it? Three points, and I'll be through. And let me just say this. It is not just important. It is imperative that the candlestick has a light. Number one, the church that John saw was showing Christ in days of secular persecution. If you study out the context of John's day, John lived through Nero, fierce anti-Christian persecution. John got to see the temple destroyed by Titus, the son of the Roman emperor, AD 70. John knew what it was under Domitian to be banished John knew what it was. Rome was killing Christians. In fact, John was the last living apostle. The rest had been martyred for their faith. John lived in a day when people were taken from the assembly and they were systematically slaughtered by the government. John lived in a day when the world was no friend to the Christian and the Christian uh, was seen as no friend to the world. Sort of like Pharaoh and Moses or Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel or Ahab and Elijah. John lived in a day of censorship and threats and arrest and protest, but they still shined for God. Can I say that we've had it pretty easy in America? Oh, so easy in America. It's fashionable to be fundamental. It still is. But there will be a day when just like that day, it'll be censorship, threats, arrests, and protests. But can I say it's still time to shine. Amen. Philippians 2.15 says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in this world. Number one, he shined in the, the church shined in days of secular persecution. I won't labor that because I want to labor this. Number two, John saw the church shining in days of spiritual perversion. Spiritual perversion. If you study out the letters written to these seven churches, every church, but maybe two, and those two have an issue, but every church has an issue. By the way, every church has an issue because every church has members. <laughs> Amen. You see, what was the issue? Ephesus left their first love. Pergamus was filled with idolatry. 
Thyatira was compromising and wrapped up in paganism. The church in Sardis was saying that they were alive, but they were dead. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia were doing pretty good, but they had to battle against what was called the synagogue of Satan. The church of Laodicea is lukewarm, and God wanted to spew them out of his mouth. So five out of these seven churches that are addressed were simply in a mess. John, in his own epistles, before John was even placed on this, he wrote in 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Time. I read the illustration, the, the, the quote. It said, A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. I'm afraid that's where the church at large is in America today. We have a lot of events and zero awakenings. We can say we have silver and gold, but no rise up and walk. They don't call us unlearned and ignorant, but we have no power with God anymore. I'm afraid today we're fashionable, we're popular and superficial, but not supernatural. We say, we're rich and in need of nothing, not knowing we're poor and destitute and naked and in need of God. Educated men might get the approval of the world, but educated men did not give us a pinnacle. And I'm not against that. But what did they produce? They've given us abortion. They've given us transgenderism. They've given us evolution. They've given us every anti-God thing in this world. It wasn't educated. It was empowered individuals that gave us a Pentecost and gave us a great awakening. We're so drunk on acceptance and so enamored with scholarship and so driven by comfort that we have nothing but perverted places of worship scattering across our nation tonight. We open our arms to error and gnash our teeth at the truth. There's no depth and no doctrine, no distinction, no declaration of the Bible. Do whatever you want, but not what thus saith the Lord. Gone from waving the banner of the Bible to flying whatever flag is most popular. Building cathedrals to compromise all over our little country. Relativism and not conviction. Snooze button, not the alarm. Amen. Shine for Jesus anyhow. Just keep preaching the Bible and hold the line. Just keep praying on, hold the line. Just keep winning souls and hold the line. Keep the standard high. The time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine, but that's okay. The Bible doesn't tell me to assimilate with that. It just says preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Keep on doing what you do for the Lord. Shine for Jesus. All right, number three, and we'll close. The church showed Christ in days of secular persecution. Showed Christ in days of spiritual perversion. One more. Showed Christ in days of a shaking perplexity. You see, what do you mean? I'm thinking John probably was wondering about the future. He'd invested his life in Christianity. All, only to see what would from the outside look like it all be stripped from him. Why do you think God was so good to let John look ahead? I think he wanted to settle his heart on what he believed. I think it was so necessary that those candlesticks be shining because after John saw the shine, he got to see the Savior, and then came all that revelation about how, listen, Jesus is at the th on the throne. He's as a lamb was slain, but now he's exalted. 
And one of these days he's going to come back in cl the clouds with a vesture dipped in blood, King of kings, Lord of lords, the word of God, faithful and true, all that good stuff. Out of his mouth will come that sword that will smite the nations. He's going to see the blood rise up to the horse's bridle. He's going to set a throne there where David should, uh, David's throne should go. And then he's going <clears> to <throat> sit in that temple and rule and reign. And I think God might have let John look through that to say, listen, these are days that could shake you. These are days that could really mess with you. These are days that can manipulate your mind and the false prophet will make merchandise of you if you're not careful. He said, so I want you to look in these candlesticks and see everything's all right in my father's house. Everything's all right down the road ahead. You don't have to doubt me now. Can I say confusion? It's the characteristic of the hour that we live in. John must have been a little bit confused. Is there any hope? So God gave him a candlestick to remind him, yes, there is hope. Romans 1, 21, because that when they knew not God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Here's the verse. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Here's the issue of the day. Why does the church need to shine? Because people are bending where they used to be immovable. But let me remind you, the Bible doesn't bend. Truth is absolute. And truth is only found in the scripture. And so the scripture is my <clears throat> final authority. I understand the lost world being insane. But Christians are being manipulated and messed with as well. But that's because the average place you go, you drive through San Jose and you look at the average church sign or their church property, they are advertising absolute craziness through their church. It's all social programs or it's, it's all uh, bedroom stuff, whatever you want to call it. That's what they're promoting from their church. So people who wander in there looking for hope, all they get is propaganda. They get falsehood. They get error. They get the left wing, whatever you want to call it. That's what they get there. And, and our world's going insane. I saw something yesterday about a, a, a woman posted it. And I don't know who she is or whatever. It's just It's got so many views and popped up. But she was saying, well, we put our kids in Christian school. And she goes, and I know what you're thinking. They go to Christian school. So all they do is thump the Bible, preach against homosexuals and backwards and all that. That's what the world thinks. That's the problem is Christians are getting ashamed of what a Christian is. That's why there needs to be a church that still lets the light shine. Because these are days of a shaking perplexity. Joe Biden, the pastor, he talked about Christmas and couldn't even mention Jesus. I remember the governor of Kentucky, when I lived there, wanted to put up a, a, a tree at, the, at, the, at, the, at the, uh, the governor before Matt Bevan. The governor wanted to put up a tree at, the, uh, at the, the governor's mansion and call it a holiday tree. That's just dumb. So you know what we asked him? We went there. You know what we asked him? He kept saying, it's a holiday tree. We said, well, what holiday are you setting up for? He's like, well, well Christmas, okay. Just want to make sure. But that just pretty much sums up where we're at. People are insane, right? I mean, just ignorant. So educated that they're dumb. So there has to be some place that still has some sanity. And by sanity, I mean scripture. Amen. Bible, principle, and a clear position on truth. That's the first message. We'll get into the letters to the churches soon. We'll see Christ in his church, all of these things. But for John to see Jesus and get this whole book rolling, it was imperative that the church had a light to shine. Our city, our area has a lot of people who want to see Jesus, need to see Jesus. They might even be hearing that still small voice nudging them to go. When they come to this place, we need to have our light on so that they might see the Lord.
Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.